tell me the first movie you remember making any impact on you. Not necessarily politically, but just the movie that got you into movies. Um, I, <laughs> this is, is going to shock you, Rico, but I'm afraid I, I didn't go to the films much. Um, we had a sinner in, in this small town that you would probably get bitten by an insect if you sat there too long. The fleas would inhabit the upholstery. But they used to show uh, French films and Italian films, post-war films. And I remember seeing European films in when I was in the teens, my teens. That's remarkable that your first film experiences were foreign films, really? I saw some English films, but they didn't make a big impression. You see, the big attraction of the French films are they were always slightly naughty. So um, I remember La Ronde. I love that, that it's like I'm talking to this, one of the great moral voices of, you know, the working class. But the thing that got you in the movies was because it was a little skin. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> never underestimate the carnal longings of a teenage boy. <laughs> <laughs> that is director Ken Loach, who grew up, much to his surprise, to become one of the most celebrated filmmakers ever. For nearly 60 years, he has made movies about the struggles of working people in the UK. Like the title character in I, Daniel Blake, an injured worker who won't jump through hoops for his disability benefits. You could lose everything. I've seen it before. Good people, honest people, on the street. Thank you, Anne. But when you lose your self-respect, you're done for. That one earned Loach his second Palme d'Or at Cannes. He's one of just nine directors to ever win it twice. And this year at Cannes, he debuted his 28th movie called The Old Oak. He says it might be his last. I'm Rico Galliano, and welcome back to the Movie Podcast. Movie's the streaming service that champions great cinema. This show tells you the stories behind great cinema. Season five is on the way. Till then, here's another special episode. It's my interview with Ken Loach. I can't think of a better guest here at the end of what's been called hot labor summer, when basically everyone everywhere has been on strike. You are going to hear Ken talk about his early life and his political awakening, how he makes his movies feel as real as they do, and about The Old Oak, which hits UK theaters this week, September 29th. It is the tale of a pub owner in a dying industrial town who decides to help out a Syrian refugee named Yara. Do you have the camera on you? Yeah. Could I please have a look? Thank you. If you've got a moment and you come back to the pub with me, I may be able to help you. Now? If you've got a moment, yeah. Which leads to a friendship that'll either unite that town or blow it completely apart. But since it's not every day I get to talk to a legend, I decided to start from the very beginning. I asked Loach to tell me about where he grew up. In the Midlands, uh, the industrial heart of England, my dad was an electrician. He learned apprentice in the coal mine. Decided he would rather work in a factory than a mine, which he did. Um, and he was in the maintenance department, which meant that he worked Monday to Friday, Saturday morning when the factory was running, and Sunday morning when the factory was closed. Mm. Um, so he worked seven days a week, which was pretty tough on him. Which meant we, you know, didn't see. Well, I saw some of him, of course, but. He he worked his socks off, poor man. I mean, obviously, given the nature of your films and your politics, I zoom in on that. Was that kind of your first inkling, for lack of a better term, of the sort of struggles of working people? Not really, no. I mean, my dad's family were working class. He, he was one of 10 and the rest were minors, the men. So I knew the life, but uh, my dad was, um, he worked solidly and, and he, 
his income was regular and he did quite well in the factory. He was a bright man, so we never struggled for money. And he wasn't political at all. So I didn't, I wasn't really political till I'd, really till I was leaving university. Really? Yeah. Was there a moment where that it suddenly occurred to you, like things are um, bad out there? Well, it was more sense of there was a struggle and there were two classes. 63, 64, 65 were the key years for me when I was, what, late 20s. I worked on a series on TV called The Wednesday Play, and it had the brief of presenting contemporary fiction in the prime time after the news with new writers. And then I was working with people who were political, listened to them. I joined the Labour Party. I worked for Harold Wilson, the new prime minister had a radical vision, or so it seemed. He spoke of the white heat of the new industrial revolution and it uh, seemed as though the world was going to change. But w- within a year, we realized the world wasn't going to change. That's a kind of like a galvanizing thing for you. It's like you had all this expectation, and then it was dashed. Well, it was. It was. So that alongside the fact the 60s were a political generation, the student revolt, the factory occupations, the events in France... Those were the times when a lot of people I knew became absorbed in revolutionary politics. Mm. I read the books, I went to the meetings, and the idea stuck. Like Darwinism, you know, and evolution, it's the next step, really, in mankind's history, socialism. You mentioned you were directing at the BBC. Not too long after that, you moved on to features. Who were some of the filmmakers whose work you were drawing on or who appealed to you? And they were the Italian films. So Antonioni and uh, De Sica films. Um, Cassavetes, I saw. I remember Cassavetes films. They mm. they touched me. Um, what? F- films with film stars never really got to me. It's funny, but they never did. Why do you think that is? I mean, like, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm working for an art house company, but, you know, I loves me a blockbuster. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I just found them too heavy-handed, I think. I had to explore a bit more than just something that, you know, hits you over the head. What filmmaker or artist kind of first made it clear that you could combine film and politics? I, I never thought of it as combining politics. I just thought of telling stories of contemporary life. But once you do that and you explore the characters, then you have to think, well, how do they live? What choices do they have? What struggles do they go through? What forms them? What kind of income do they have? How do they get it? You know, the basic questions you have to ask about a character, they have political implications. So it's not a question of just introducing politics. It's, an, it's a way of telling stories that reveal society, I suppose. But I mean, there's lots of filmmakers who make movies about modern life that they don't go to the level of politics that your films do. I mean, I'm thinking of your movie, Land of Freedom. Actually, in a lot of your movies, there will be scenes where characters sit around and they'll literally kind of debate their political and economic situations. Why is that how stories come out of you? Yeah, I mean, it's happened in Land and Freedom because they, they were faced as, as uh, people were at the time. It was, it's, it's, it's not, let's pause and have a political discussion. It was, we have a problem, what are we going to do? I mean, the, the, if you pause for politics, it's bad filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand... People do in real life talk politics. You know, if, if, you, if you're engaged in a strike, you talk politics. And that's legitimate. 
Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare's history plays are full of people gathering around, arguing over a political way forward, or how to get power, or who's mm-hmm. betraying who, or why should someone be kicked out, or why should somebody be put in their place, or whatever. Why get rid of Caesar? You know, it's a legitimate, <laughs> dramatic confrontation to express, and to express in political language, if the people, it's their language, if it's the language of the characters. But it can't be as the language of the author or the director. Mm-hmm. But in most of the stories we've done, which are, you know, just daily life, the political struggle is lived. I mean, we did one called I, Daniel Blake. Nobody speaks politics in that film. It's just the struggle of a man to survive. Or in the um, the one, you know, that followed it, Sorry We Missed You, about the gig economy and casualised labour. Uh, it's just a family dealing with the consequences of insecure work. Um I want to talk about your style a little bit. Yeah. Very documentary in a lot of ways. Why not make more documentaries? Like there's plenty of real life examples of the people yes. and issues you tackle in your films. Well, I've made them, but the way we shoot is not documentary at all. I mean, we, we, the scenes are constructed like fiction but with the cameras, the kind of analogy I try and use is the camera as an observer and the sound as an observer too. So that it's, the, the audience is drawn in as an observer. But isn't that how documentaries, that is what a documentarian does, he's an observer. It is in a way, but it's quite different. I mean, there is a script, and, and when you look at the printed script, it's very close. 95% of it is as Paul's written. I mean, it should look authentic. Our hope is that we, we try to create something that is an authentic experience. I mean, the, you believe these people are credible, because a lot of the... The substance is in the way people speak. It's in their interactions, how they deal with each other. It's the texture of their skin. You know, it's how they sit. That you, you can't perform it. It is in the very people in front of the camera. My my understanding is that for I am Daniel Blake, and I wonder if this is typical of your films. That to get that, you shot in sequence and kind of parceled out the script as it went so the actors didn't know what was happening until they started shooting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done that since, um, or back in the 60s. How did you hit upon that? Well, when I was doing police series, I was just beginning, we would do the conventional thing. We'd have a read-through. I would rehearse them for 10 days. We'd go into the studio and record it continuously because tape was too expensive to cut. And at the read-through, they were all brilliant. And I would direct them for 10 days, and, and they'd gradually turn into f- pretty awful. And I realised <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. So um, mm. we, we cut out the read-through, do a lot of little improvised scenes about what might have happened before the film began. You build the relationships in a kind of an improvised way so that it's you get to the relationship that is written in the script, but you've arrived at it in a in a way that's um, instinctive rather than cerebral. Let's finally turn to the old oak and the time we've got remaining. Yeah. You have said this could be your last film. Mm. Did you know that when you started making it? Um, I've had a sense for the last few years that I'm on borrowed time, you know, as a director. Mm. I mean, it needs a lot of emotional energy, really, just to... I mean, I'm lucky I've got, you know, an we're an amazing gang, you know, of people and camera, sound, design. Paul Lavitt is you know, a wonderful comrade and colleague and pal. Your screenwriter, yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm his director, I think. He's not my screenwriter. I mean, <laughs> but, but, no, the, the prime creative act is the man who confronts the blank sheet of paper. I'm 
really aware of that and the huge respect for the writer and the producer, of course, Rebecca. And we, we've worked together so long, our, our little group, that we, we, we are a team, you know, and, and it's not me saying, do this, do that. I mean, they'd look at me askance. I mean, it's, everyone is a partnership and I know we share the same aesthetic, so everything will work in the same direction. But nevertheless, well, on, the, on the day you're shooting... Someone's got to drive it. So when you started making that film, mm. thinking that it might be your last, to what extent did that dictate the subject matter? Like, this could be my swan song. Um, not really. I don't think it did. I think it was just that story. Two communities, how are they going to survive together? How did you, uh, or Paul Laverty, hit upon that story? Um, well, we've done two in that region. In one idea that's been consistent for a long time is the consequence of the old industries being closed down, like coal mining, shipbuilding, steel, nothing being put in their place. So the communities around, say, the coal mine just wither away and people are left abandoned. And that's been a story we've wanted to tell for a long time. So how do we tell it? Well, Paul had the idea that if a group of refugees from Syria come, you reveal the nature of that ex-mining community in how they respond. And some with, will respond with the solidarity of the old miners' tradition and the miners' union, a great solidarity, brilliant tradition. And some will respond with, why us? We've got nothing. Why aren't they sent to an area where there is more wealth? Why us? And then out of that becomes a breeding ground for racism, really. Why us? Mm -hmm. We don't want foreigners. We don't like foreigners. We don't want them here. You know, there's a, there's a progression, a downward spiral that can lead you into racism from a legitimate grievance. What do you think makes one, because your main character is one of the ones who welcomes them. What do you think makes one man care about people not like him and another man hate them? I mean, he's, he's reluctant to, he does welcome them, but he's quite reluctant because he's running a pub and the, and the people won't come, you know, if he, if he seemed to be too with the refugees. But yet he does. He does because he's, he has a, a history in his life of being a community activist. But his big friend, Charlie, schoolboy friend, he's out of the same background. And he's, um, it, it's very little for him to take a different course. People just get pessimistic. There's no hope. What can we do? And now we've got another bunch coming. Dear God, you know, what more have we got to suffer? Funny, innit? Uh, they always put them round here, but they never put them in Chelsea or fucking Westminster. Well, of do course they? they don't. They no. don't want them living by them, do they? It's why they're dumping them on us by the fucking busloads. Exactly. I mean, I'm not against refugees, immigrants. I mean, God, my father was Irish. But there's fuck all in this village now. And we're supposed to share it with that lot. We don't even know them. And if you say anything about it, all the posh wangas make you out to be a racist. I'm fucking sick so of it. You can see it happening, you know, and you don't have to be wicked to slip down that slope, you know. And, and then one or two will adopt racist language because there's racist language in the right-wing press. There's racist language in the government talking about being invaded by small boats. There's a prime minister saying we, we must have a, a hostile reception. You've got a member of the cabinet here, senior minister, a bunch of refugee kids putting in a, a reception room with Disney characters on the wall to welcome them. What does he do? He orders the wall to be painted so there's no Disney characters to welcome the kids. 
you know, I mean, the horror of that. What kind of person would do that? You know, what kind of person? So if, if that's the racism implicit in the government, and, you know, the, that's nothing compared to the right-wing press, then, of course, it seeps into people who are in despair. I want to focus on your protagonist, yeah. who is such a heartbreaking character, just beautifully played by this guy, Dave Turner, who's yeah. basically, as far as I can tell, a retired fire department worker until you started casting him in a bit parts he, a few years ago. Yeah, he's an interesting man, actually. I mean, he's, yes, he was a firefighter. He, he was a union official for a time. And there's, a, there's an imaginative quality to him and a, a really openness and a vulnerability about him. What I learned really early on is you don't stereotype people, you know. There's a lot to him, really. How did you come to make him the star? He'd done a couple of small parts in the other two films. And it was always, been, it was always good fun. If he got a few lines, he would knew what they were. But he made them his own. He made them like his, what he would say. And I felt he had more to him. And we tried him out in, in little improvised scenes. And he was extraordinary. Immensely sensitive, empathetic, revealed, you know, would reveal emotions that he probably didn't know he had. It's been locked up for about 20 years, this room. Back in the day, it used to be packed every day. There used to be a pit in the village, a coal mine. Every village around here had their own pit. They're long gone now, of course. All be a life. She's gone forever. I got to tell you, this movie and characters like that, I've, I've grown up watching your movies since, you know, I think I started with Riff Raff, I think, oh, in the right. early 90s. And working class characters like this were kind of like heroic to me. Right. And I'm not of that class. Do you feel on some level like you're a, a translator in a way? Like, I feel like there are certain figures that can translate between cultures. Um, Do you think of yourself that way? Um, no, I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but I think it's, no, I, we just think, and I always say we, because it's, it's always me and Paul and me and the others. So we, we, we just think of ourselves as trying to tell, share stories, really. Introduce people, people you hope people find interesting, you know, you cry with them, you laugh with them, you understand their dilemmas. Just in those terms is the only way we've we've thought about what we do. In a lot of ways, this movie ends up with a positive message. It doesn't resolve all of the issues for this character, but for the town, there's a sense of possibility and optimism mm, that people mm. can come together. Mm, how mm. much of this movie is the world that is likely and how much is the world as you want it to be? Um well, I mean, the, the Syrians have now made good friends in that region. In, in the real world? In the real world. And the impetus has come from people like in the film, the ones who were either born into, and even if they're young, know that tradition of solidarity from the industrial past. That's not a fiction. And I think that's, it's easy to be pessimistic because the, the right wing are in control here, no doubt. The climate disaster that's upon us, the growing inequality, the wars around the place. But the only cause for optimism is, is that determination to be in solidarity with people we see struggling. And I think that's very real. And I'm sure it's the same, you know, in, in your country as well. That at heart, people will support each other. 
if we can build with that, then out of that, you, you've got political strength. There's the, the character of Yara in the movie. She's, there's one scene where she's talking about the camera that she's very fond of. She's a photographer. Mm. But then there's this line that immediately stood out to me. She says, This camera saved my life. What was that? Because I saw a lot of things I, I wish I hadn't seen. I don't have the words to describe them. When I look through this camera, I, I choose to see some hope and some strength. And I wonder if that's you. you well, yes, it's true, certainly true. It's true. And, um, <laughs> and true of Paul as well, you know, who wrote the line, you know, wonderful writer, wonderful writer. Yeah, I, I think that is true. But it, hope cannot be wishful thinking. There's a difference. They're not daydreams, you know. That's you, you've got to have confidence that there is a path. Then you can have hope you can walk along it. But if you don't see a path, then you're in the grip of propaganda, aren't you? That's the great yeah. danger we face. I mean, you can see that's where Trump gets his support from people who see no other way forward. You're providing a path with this movie, maybe. Well, you'd hope so, you know, at least <laughs> pointing a direction through a tangled undergrowth, but a bit of a path. <laughs> Ken Loach. His latest and possibly final film is called The Old Oak, though I hope not. It hits UK cinemas September 29th, and us Yanks get it in US theaters in January. And that is the movie podcast for this week. Follow us so you don't miss our full season five coming soon. We're going to be telling the stories of movies that defined how the world clothes itself. From that little black dress you wore last night to that little leather Africa pendant you might have worn back in the 90s. It's going to be fun. Stay tuned. And also, hey, October, the creepy month is nigh. Do you like scary movies? If so, head to movie.com and look for the double bill called Do You Like Scary Movies? It includes the 90s flick There's Nothing Out There, arguably the blueprint for meta-horror movies like Scream. Check it out if your poor heart can stand it. Meanwhile, this episode of the Movie Podcast was written, hosted, and edited by me, Rico Galliano. Kira McKenneth produced, mastering by Stephen Colon. Yuri Suzuki composed our theme music. Thanks this week to David Harper and Patrick Reed. The show is executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, F.H. Eckerell, Daniel Kasman and Michael Taka. Thanks for listening. Now go watch some movies. <laughs>